Today we're going to be studying Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. Obviously it flows on from that which we were studying before, so I'm going to read from the start of Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through to verse 20. And before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless your word to us now, this day, that our hearts would be made ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very word of God. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1, we'll read through to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Icheria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, Pardon me, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So today we're looking at the last part of John's preaching that Luke has recorded for us, and we're looking at how people were um, interacting with John, what they were thinking was happening, and also we're looking at um, the response of different people to the word that was preached to them. Verse 15 reads, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Well, why were they asking these questions? You've got to remember, at that time in Judea, everybody was hoping for the Messiah, but they weren't necessarily hoping for the Messiah that God was going to send. 
the Messiah had in a way been blown up into almost an action movie superhero. You know, the Messiah was the one who was going to come and solve every problem. The Messiah was the one who's going to come and put the Romans back in their place. The Messiah was the one who's going to come and put Jerusalem at the head of the cities of the world. It was kind of like the Messiah will do this. The Messiah will do that. In the days of the Messiah, troubles and problems, they will all cease. So along comes John the Baptist. And to those who were willing to accept that God had sent a prophet to his people one more time, the question is, is he the Messiah? You know, this, this in some ways presented to us as almost a wild man that, that came out of the wilderness, clothed in camel's hair and feeding on wild honey and locusts. You know, is, is, is this the Messiah? Or is this the guy that's going to um, set all things to right? So the people were willing to um, almost accept anyone as the Messiah. And you've got to remember that John is speaking to what you, what you have to call a mixed audience. Now, they were Jews, but there's a difference between a believing, faithful Jew and a Jew who is a Jew for no other reason than they claim that they descended from the line of Abraham. And John is preaching to that mixed audience. Even today, like if you just think about it today, you know, I've, I know I've said this a few times over the years, but... Plug into Google, type into Google, who claims to be Jesus in the world today? You know, how, how many false Jesus are there in the world today? And there are hundreds of them, and some of them actually have thousands and thousands of followers. You know, in, in, in some parts of the world, these, these very strange and I would say very stupid people who claim to be Jesus actually get a following. And so it's not saying much for those who follow them, I know, but that's the way it is. People question in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, but what Christ are they looking for? You know, there are people everywhere who say they believe in God, but ask them to give you one solid truth about the God they claim they believe in, and you'd be lucky to get any truth out of their mouth whatsoever. You know, for, for, for most people who say they believe in God, the God they claim they believe in is, is something like Santa Claus, a nice old man who gives away free stuff. And even though he knows you've been naughty, he still gives away the free stuff. That's sort of, that is the picture that the world would have of God if they're willing to um, admit that there is a God. So they question whether John might be the Christ. John answers them, I baptise you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And what he actually says there is literally, but the one mightier than I is coming. But the one, the one who is mightier than I, the, the one who is more powerful. It's, it's the same phrase used later on in the Gospel of Luke, if you just look to Luke chapter 11. And if we start reading at verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marvelled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul... 
by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, verse 22, but when one stronger than he attacks, it's literally when the stronger one attacks, or when the mightier one attacks, and he overcomes him. Back to Luke chapter 3. The one who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, John has basically just put himself at the lowest of the low in a, in a, in a Jewish household. If a, if a Jewish household is wealthy and they had Jewish slaves, the Jewish slaves are not the people who take off sandals, put on sandals and wash other people's feet. The, 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 the lowest of the low work is given to non-Jewish slaves. And John is, is sort of using that, so how great is the one who is coming? He's so great that I couldn't even be his foot-washing slave, his, sandals, his sandal-tying slave. I'm, I'm as low as can be low. I baptise you with water. I baptise you with water. Remember, we've been told that this baptism is a baptism of repentance. And John is not preaching to people what we would call the full-blown gospel of the Messiah dying upon the cross with our sins borne upon his shoulders. You know, the, the Messiah who died and was raised to life. John is preaching the coming of the Messiah. He's preaching the truth. But the gospel, as we see it, from after the cross with the New Testament, here in front of us is different to the gospel as John saw it from before the cross with the Old Testament behind him. John knows there's a saviour to come. John knows that God has sent that saviour. I baptise with water. John is simply saying if you, if, if, if you would consider yourself a faithful Jew ready to receive your Messiah, you would need to have repented and have been washed clean because... The nation is not the way the nation ought to be. The people are not the way the people ought to be. And you are not faithful. You claim to be Jews. You claim to be the children of Abraham. Pardon me, of Abraham. And you are not. He will baptise you, finishing off verse 16. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now you need to um, work out what he's saying. He will baptise you. It's plural. That you is plural. He will baptise you all. Remember, I was saying that John was speaking to a mixed crowd. In that mixed crowd, faithful, believing, actually ready to receive the Messiah and hard-hearted, religious, hypocritical, claiming to be something that they're not. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those who are baptised in the Holy Spirit, what are we talking about? Well, I would suggest we're not talking about what the Pentecostals these days call baptism in the Holy Spirit. I would suggest we're talking about simply nothing more and nothing less than to be converted. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Is there any difference between the conversion that these people 
may well receive as compared to the conversion that all of the faithful who came before them had received? And the answer is no. If a person has saving faith, they have saving faith by the power of God's Holy Spirit. If a person has received the scriptures truly as the word of God, they have received those scriptures because God's Holy Spirit has enabled them to do so. If a person has true understanding of the word of God, they have understanding of the word of God because the spirit of God which breathed out the scriptures or by which God breathed out his scriptures is helping them to understand. The difference is that he becomes the means of baptism. This one who is mightier than John, he's the one. Remember all the times Jesus said, if, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. We read in the morning service from John chapter 8, Jesus basically saying to the Jews, Abraham knew who I was. Abraham rejoiced that he knew who I was. And the Jews were saying, who do you reckon you are? The same Holy Spirit. But now it's very simple. With the revelation of God in the person of Jesus, his son, there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus, his son. It's now explicit. It's now out there in the open. God, the eternally begotten son of God, whom we call the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved son spoken of in Psalm 2, he baptises in the Holy Spirit. Through faith in him, you are receiving the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church. He will baptise you with Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, and fire. And fire? Well, look, verse 17 basically is explaining verse 16. Look carefully. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Okay, now a number of you may have seen what it is that Jesus is speaking of here, but he's speaking of winnowing out the grain from the chaff. For example, a wheat crop. You've got a round or, or a large, smooth area. Usually it's stone or it's compressed earth. You bring your harvest in, you loosen it up, you leave it there, and, and then with a pitchfork, you start throwing this stuff in the air. First of all, it's actually, I've missed a step. They break the grain away from the stalks. They do that by running cattle, usually with a sledge over it, just round and round and round smashing it to pieces, more or less, just breaking it up, smashing it to pieces, and then flicking all this stuff up into the air. The breeze blows away the chaff, the grain falls to the ground, do it all day long, and eventually you end up with a pile of grain and very little chaff. That's what John is speaking of. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Okay, who would be the wheat that is gathered into his barn? those who are baptised with the Holy Spirit, those to whom he gives the gift of eternal life, those whom he makes sons of God through adoption, those whom he has saved, purchased, redeemed, those who have received him as Lord and Saviour. They're the the grain being saved. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll look at the second half of verse 17. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So looking at a group, a a mixed group, the faithful, the faithless, those with a heart for God, those with a false religion. John says, remember, this is a warning. His warning has been repent, repent, be baptised, 
Seek the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because the one who is mightier than I is coming. Don't tell me you're a son of Abraham. Because God can make sons of Abraham out of stones. You, you must live faithfully according to the law which has been given to you. If you want to claim to be Jews, you should be looking to the teaching of the Holy Scriptures and they should be humbling you down into the dirt so that you know that you need to repent and seek forgiveness. A mixed audience. Some listen, some do not. Some are humbled, some are not. And then John says to the mixed audience, and this is the way it's going to be when the one who is mightier than I comes. Some of you will be baptised in the Holy Spirit. You will be the grain gathered into storage, gathered by himself, protected and loved. Some of you will be baptised in fire. And then he says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is sort of language borrowed out of the Psalms. Psalm, Psalm, Psalm 1 and verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or as we read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. John is preaching destruction. The destruction of the wicked. And yet, this is preaching the good news. This is preaching the gospel. You know, we... we Sometimes you've got to proclaim the hard truth. Sometimes you've got, to, you've, got to, uh, you've got to tell people that if you want to get to the good news, you better accept the bad news. The bad news is that in your sins, you are not in a good relationship with God. You have some kind of relationship with God and it's not positive. <laughs> He's the creator of the earth. He's the creator of all humanity. And that creator requires of you faithful obedience and you have not been rendering unto him due obedience. And so your relationship is not good. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This is good news. It's good news. It's good news that Jesus has come. It's good news that Jesus is gathering the grain or the wheat into his barn. It's good news that he's separating the peoples and that he's burning off the stubble. He's burning off the chaff. All of this is good news. It's good news that the things of God are being made plain and open to us, to everyone. All of this is good news. Now, I'm not saying that all the world will accept this as good news, but when God says it's good news, it's good news. It's the gospel. It's the truth. When God reveals the truth, it's good. Anyway, reading on, verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, now, this is not Herod the Great. This is a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked, John, locked up John in prison. The Herods were just a wicked, you know, the word bestial comes to mind or evil or just consumed by lust and wickedness. That there are so many different ways to describe the, the, the Herod family. How about incestuous? Incestuous. And what's more, not even ashamed of their incestuousness and their lust. Um, so 
Herodias was actually related to her previous husband and related to Herod. And yet Herod steals her from his brother, so to speak. They divorce their current spouses. Herod divorced his wife. Herod's brother divorced his, uh, and I'm sorry, Herod's wife Herodias had divorced his brother. Um, incestuous, incestuous, wicked, lust-driven, lust-enslaved family. John rebukes them. John rebukes them. John speaks the truth into darkness. John speaks the truth against wickedness. This is just so utterly countercultural to the world that we live in today. To, you know, I mean, these, these phrases are sort of more American than they are Australian, but this stuff is having the same influence here in Australia. The woke brigade, the social justice brigade, you know, the, that, that, that narrative of the oppressed. And you basically can't say nor do anything against the oppressed. And, and if someone who is supposedly oppressed does some wicked thing, well, you're supposed to find all the excuses in the world for them. Oh, he did it because people have been discriminating against them forever and ever. Um, there's no excuses for wickedness. God doesn't care about the social justice agenda. God doesn't care about the woke agenda. God's not even remotely interested. As we read earlier, it's Jesus himself who said that there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Concerning those born from women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You know, I, I, there, are, there are so many teachers and so many churches today that instead of trying to rebuke this man and his wife and their incestuous relationship, would be trying to say, well, we've got to try and win them for the Lord. Now, if they repented, you'd receive them, of course. You know, anyone, anyone who truly repents and put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus, we as Christians, we're under obligation to receive them. But you call sin, sin. You deal with sin as sin. And pretending that it's not sin is not in any way going to help. You know, that I, I, I can just think of churches that have missionaries off overseas who are on their third wife. Third wife. And that missionary, by the way, supposedly is conducting ministry to underprivileged women. You work that out in your head. A man on his third wife who is supposedly helping underprivileged women in a poor society and tell me that that doesn't add up to some kind of trouble and that doesn't add up to some kind of stupidity on behalf of the people who have sent him there. But I oh know I'm saying this, I'm a bad man. People would tell you, you know, if, if someone from that congregation who knew exactly what I was talking about, heard this message, they would tell you that that Clements, he's a judgmental pig and there's no forgiveness in his heart and all he preaches is the law and he hates people. I know that's what they'd say. 
All right? But where does the scripture say you can send a man on his third wife into a third world nation so that he can supposedly minister to oppressed women? Explain that one to me. Where does it say that a minister of the gospel, where does it say that a minister of the gospel can have that track record? And if you can find it for me, I'll back down and I'll say I'm in the wrong. But I know you won't find it because it's not in the scriptures. I know what the scriptures say about a man who's preaching the gospel. And it says he's supposed to be the husband of but one wife. And it says that a widow may remarry. And it says that a marriage can only be dissolved on the grounds of adultery, etc., etc. But, you know, the good old 11th commandment, you shall not say anything that anybody might disagree with or could in any way find offensive. That one's there somewhere, isn't it? There's, there's, some special, there's some special edition somewhere here in the Bible. You know, what the first good intentions in the book of good intentions, chapter 6, maybe, you could find it. It's not there. He rebuked them. He spoke openly to them. And he did not fear them. He did not fear them. You know, it, I'm, I'm not claiming to be the bravest man upon the face of the earth and I'm, I'm not saying that I would not feel the temptation to back down. I would. You know, you, you're sometimes thinking to yourselves, what hill do I want to die on? What fight do I want to have? What battle do I want to fight? And this guy's got this massive public ministry. The, the, the contemporary historian of those days is an apostate Jew by the name of Josephus. And Josephus records that at the beginning of their respective ministries, John the Baptist was far and away more popular than Jesus. And that the crowds that were going out to hear his teaching were in the tens of thousands at the beginning of their respective ministries. So put yourself in John's shoes at that time. And you're about to publicly say that this king who's supported by Rome, this puppet king of the Roman Empire, supported by Rome, has a brutal army completely at his disposal and can order the death of anyone as easily as he can order bacon for breakfast. This king, he's a sinner, he's involved in an incestuous relationship to a divorced harlot, and he ought not to be. And he's going to say it publicly in the hearing of thousands upon thousands of people. You want to know... Why our nation is sick. You want to know one of the signs that our nation is sick? He would be saying something like that. We're being ruled over by the unclean, by the vile, by the haters of the law of God. We say we're the children of Abraham. We say we've got the covenant. We say we've got the law. We've got the teaching of Moses and the ungodly run our nation. That's what he'd say in front of tens of thousands of people. So what happens? When you say that in front of tens of thousands of people, not only that, but some of those people are tax collectors and teachers. And I'm sorry, tax collectors and soldiers, people on the government payroll. So that word, people talk, you know, people talk. You know, on your lunch break, you sit around, you talk to the people that you work with, you share the news. I went and heard this crazy preacher, wild man. Came out of the wilderness. You know what he said? He said Herod was an incestuous sinner, that his wife is a nasty harlot, 
and that as long as they've got power over this nation, nothing good is going to come of it. Talk goes up the line, talk comes back down the line. Go get that man. He can't say things like that. I'm the king. Rome rules here. Added so. John makes enemies in high places. John makes enemies in high places. Now, how many churches and how many Christians think that what we should be trying to do is make friends in high places? A mutual friend of ours has moved to Sydney to take up studies. He told me that two weeks ago he attempted to go to church and was stopped at the door. His certificate of vaccination was required and if he couldn't show it, he and his family were sent away. That's a church. That's a church. Since when did churches do the government's dirty work? I thought that we were looking for baptised faithful believers, but apparently in some churches what you're looking for is the double, triple vaccinated. I thought that we were supposed to be discerning according to the word of God and that in Christ there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, etc., etc. But apparently in Christ there is uh, the unvaccinated and you better stay away from those dirty, unclean, unvaccinated. They want to make friends in high places. But, you know, their thinking is if the government were on our side, if we just submit to this demand from the government, they'll let us keep operating our precious, special little ministry for the next couple of years. We don't want to make enemies in high places. We want to make friends in high places. We want to, we want to win friends and influence people. You know, there's people who... I've had people try to tell me that the church would be stronger if it evangelised the professionals, the doctors, the lawyers, the architects, the engineers, etc., etc. The church would be stronger if it evangelised these people because these people have influence on society. I know a whole lot of those people. And there's a whole lot of those people live, for example, in many suburbs of Sydney where the real estate prices are a bit higher than other suburbs. And a whole lot of those people go to certain churches of a certain denomination. And they have not asked, they have not asked a single question about this enormous, crazy government overreach that has happened in our nation in the last two years. And they have not put up the slightest bit of resistance. We're professionals. We're respectable. You don't go against the stream when you're a professional because you've got a professional reputation. You know the kind of people I'm talking about and you know the churches that I'm speaking of. You know the denomination I've got in mind, I'm absolutely certain, and the particular part of that denomination. And they, when, when that church speaks, it claims to be the Australian church and it claims to be representative of Australian Christians. Talks as though we all answer to it. You know the people I'm talking about. And all they want to do is have friends in high places. And they're in a city with a population of five or six million people, the vast majority of whom are not having the gospel preached to them and wouldn't know where to find a church. But they've got friends in high places and they're respectable. 
The prophetic ministry is not a ministry that's seeking friends in high places and friends with the world. The prophetic ministry and the church is called to the prophetic ministry, my friends. We're called to speak to the world concerning its sins. We're called to speak to the world concerning wickedness. We're called to speak to the world concerning the righteousness of God and the way people ought to live. We're called to that kind of ministry. Each and every one of us in our own, you know, I realise, you know, I don't have a massive audience out there. And you guys, you have, you guys are putting, you guys aren't putting stuff on the internet and you have an even smaller one. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a flea in terms of, you know, people that are out there, in terms of people that are getting their word out there. If they're elephants, I'm the flea. That's all I am. But we're called to address the sins of the world and we're called to do it without fear. You know, we say we trust God. We're called, we're, we're told to call sin, sin. And yeah, we're not told to send people to hell. You're a sinner, therefore you're going to hell. You're a sinner, therefore you need the Lord Jesus Christ and you are to repent, but you've got to understand it's sin. And with regards to public people who have a public place in this world and a public ministry, understand this. All of our governing officials, they're in a place that has been ordained by God for the good of all humanity. They have a public ministry in some ways similar to the ministry of any pastor or any elder, which means, therefore, that that which God requires of his pastors and elders, he requires of those public ministers employed in the government. He requires the same standard of righteousness from them. So John was in the right, rebuking them for their wickedness. Anyways, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Herod the sinner, being reproved by John for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them all. Right? The hard-hearted, those who will not hear rebuke. If they will not hear rebuke, they're not in a neutral place. They're adding sin to sin. It's always the way. You're adding sin to sin. If you will not hear a rebuke, if you will not be called to order, you're adding sin to sin, right? Neutrality does not exist. You're either gathering with Christ or you're scattering from him. You're either with him or against him. And the idea that you can stand still spiritually is also a myth. You're either in Christ, growing in Christ-likeness, or you are in Adam, increasing in sinfulness. You, you are either in the flesh, growing ever more fleshy, getting an ever-hardened heart, or you are in Christ, becoming ever more Christ-like, becoming ever more conscientious and faithful in your service to God. That's the only two options. And no one's standing still, my friends. No one. And... This Herod, this younger Herod, adds to his sins in that he punishes God's preacher. He added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. In terms of chronology, there's reason to believe from the other Gospels that this locking up of John happened sometime later, around about in the Gospel of Luke, around about Luke chapter 11, which we also read earlier. 
but Luke is here giving a summary statement of the ministry of John and the words that John addressed to the government of his day. So it's sort of, though in terms of, you know, the Gospels are not a reprint of a day-by-day diary. You know, I keep a work diary. I can tell you where I went and what I did there, and I can give it to you in pretty much perfect chronological order. Every time I do a task, I write it down. I have to do that in order to collect my pay. But I've got a work diary. I can tell you all about my work. You want to know the details? I can put them in front of you. The gospel is not a diary. It's not a reprint of a chronological diary. Remember, the reason that these men who were called to write the gospels wrote the gospels was to lead people to Jesus, to turn people to Jesus, to reveal God through Jesus Christ to anyone who, to whom the word reaches. And in our day and age, we worry about things like that. If you read a biography, you want to know where the biographer got these details. You want the biography to come to you in a certain set order. That's not what a gospel is. John was a preacher of righteousness and preaching righteousness did not win him friends in high places. And we're not going to have friends in high places, my friends. If we're faithful, you're just not going to have friends in high places. It may happen occasionally that a true Daniel will get into a place of power or a true Joseph. But that's in the providence of God. And honestly, we're not to expect it. We've got a prime minister who claims to be a Christian. Can you name me one thing you think he might have done that he's done because he's a Christian? You know, one thing that he said? One, di- one, one speck of difference that he's made because he claims he's a Christian? Because I can't think of anything at this moment. If I'm wrong, I'm happy for you to tell me where I'm wrong. I can't think of a thing. He takes the name of Jesus to himself. There's a price to pay for him. In the end, he answers to God for all that he does with the authority he's been given. He ought to be our friend in high places, but he isn't. He ought to be, but he is not. So... I repeat once more that verse from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In your faithfulness, expect resistance. In your faithfulness, expect some kind of persecution, whether it's legal persecution or whether it's just the persecution of mocking and scorn. Expect it to come your way. And when it does, rejoice. I'm doing something right. That's the way it is. That's the way it was for John. And if John was the greatest of those born of women, what right have you and I got to expect anything different? Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to be courageous and obedient and help us to have wisdom as to when and how we ought to speak. Help us to say that which ought to be said. Father, may we say it with grace. May we say it with courage. Yet, Father... Let us speak the truth and not back away from it. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.